A church bulletin had a clever poem about criticism that began this way. A little seed lay in the ground and soon began to sprout. Now which of all the flowers around shall I, it mused, come out? The seed couldn't, could then be heard saying, I don't want to be a rose. Roses have too many thorns. Um, I have no desire to be a lily. It's too colorless. And I certainly wouldn't want to be a violet because it's too small and close to the ground. And the poem concludes with this verse about that fault-finding seed. And so it criticized each flower, that supercilious seed, until it woke one summer hour and found itself a weed. (laughs) As we come to Romans chapter 2 this morning, we are going to deal with this kind of person, a person who finds fault with other people and who compares himself or herself with others. In the first major section of Romans that we looked at last week, which begins at verse 18 of chapter 1, Paul began his description and explanation of the gospel by explaining that everyone is guilty before God. And he pointed out various sins that people commit. He spoke about our failure to respond to natural revelation uh, in the cosmos around us. We do not acknowledge God or give God credit, typically, for being who he is and doing what he has done. And Paul went on to say, because people don't do that, God gives them over to a, a twisted mind. And so they come up with all kinds of crazy explanations for things that uh, contradict what God has said he has done. And because they do not like to retain God in their consciousness, he gives them over further to uh, even worse sin. And so we find a lot of the types of behavior that are common in the world today. He speaks of all unrighteousness, verse 29, wickedness, greed, malice, envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, people who are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And he paints a pretty grim picture of humanity here. And we learn in this section, as we discovered last week, that God's typical method of bringing judgment on people is not to zap them out of the blue with a, with a lightning bolt of judgment, but it is simply to allow them to continue in their sin. And as they do, they reap the uh, punishment of those sins. Our sins actually become God's way of judging us. We get farther and farther in the hole, so to speak, as we go along. 
if we do not acknowledge God. Now this whole discussion raises a question, and that is, uh, wait a minute, Uh, I'm not that kind of a person, I'm not that bad, after all, I acknowledge that there is a God, Uh, I pray to him, I try and do his will, I try and follow him the best that I can, so uh, I must not be like those, these other people that Paul is talking about in chapter 1. So in chapter 2, Paul begins to respond to that. And he adopts a form of writing here that is called the diatribe. And uh, this particular form that we will discover <clears throat> involves an imaginary dialogue that takes place. Paul is dialoguing with a person uh, who is raising questions, and he's providing the answers. And so he's talking to somebody here. He says, therefore, you who you are without excuse. He's, he's talking to an individual. Uh, it's an imaginary person who is raising objection to what has been said. And he's going to say in chapter 2, verse 1, through chapter 3, verse 23, that uh, everybody needs the gospel. It's not the people that have just hit bottom and that are the out-and-out people of the world. They're not the gross sinners. But uh, everybody needs the gospel. Everybody needs the righteousness of God. In chapter 1, he talked about denying special revelation. Now in chapter 2, he talks more about denying, or rather, general revelation in chapter 1. And in chapter 2, he's talking more about special revelation, the revelation of Scripture that people deny. And in the first 16 verses, which we're going to look at this morning, he explains three principles by which God is going to judge people. And these are very helpful for us to observe. Three principles that uh, will determine how God judges people. Therefore, you are without excuse. Every man of you who passes judgment, who says, uh, I'm not as bad as so-and-so, and we can always find somebody that we can compare ourselves favorably to. For in that you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge, practice the same things. Now Paul has just said in verse 32 that those who practice such things are worthy of death. And now Paul says, everybody practices the same things. Well, how can he say that? I mean, um, not everybody is a murderer. So how can we practice the same things? Well, he's going to explain that. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. And this is the first principle by which God judges. Namely, he judges righteously. He judges according to what is fair and honest and just. He does the right thing. And this really reflects on the character of God. God himself is a right person. 
He always does things that are right because he is righteous. You know, sometimes when you go into court, uh, you may not get justice because the judge is crooked. And Paul's point here is that the judge that we will all stand before one day is not crooked, that he's righteous. He, he deals straightly with people. You know, an example of an, an unrighteous judge was David, uh, King David in the Old Testament. David should have executed his son, Absalom, because Absalom was guilty of murder. He murdered his brother, Amnon. David should have sent Joab, his commander-in-chief, to death because Joab had murdered somebody without proper authorization. Out of war, this was not a wartime situation, he just murdered a man. And yet, David did not pass judgment on those two men. And it may be because David himself had committed murder. Remember, David had murdered Uriah after he committed adultery with Uriah's wife. And it may very well have been that David, faced with the possibility of sending men to death for murder, realized that he was condemning himself if he condemned them, and he just couldn't bring himself to do it. That's a possible explanation for, for David's action. And undoubtedly, it affects judges today. It affects all of us. I'm sure that parents sometimes, faced with a disciplinary problem with their children, are reluctant to exercise discipline because they realize that they've done the same thing themselves. How can I punish my kid for this? Because I've done worse than that. <clears throat> and it affects our judgment. But God is not like that. He is not going to be affected by his own mistakes as he exercises judgment because he has made no mistakes. He is an absolutely righteous person. And so he can dispense justice fairly, righteously. And do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment upon those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? He says, you're claiming that uh, you're better than these other people who have committed all these gross sins in chapter 1, but you yourself do the same thing. And do you think you will escape the judgment of God? Well, what does he mean? I mean if, if a person has killed somebody, he's a murderer. But if he hasn't, he's not, right? Well, that, that's not how Jesus looked at it, is it? Remember what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. We go back here to Matthew 5, 21. You have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. You commit murder, you're, you're liable before the earthly court. 
But if you're angry with your brother without a cause, you will be liable before the heavenly court. And whoever shall say to his brother, Raka, or jerk, in other words, <laughs> you fool, shall be guilty before the supreme court, that is, the heavenly court. And whoever shall say, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fire of the hell of fire. Now, Jesus was not changing the Mosaic law here. He was simply explaining what God had in mind when he gave the law against murder. He not only wanted people to refrain from literally slaying one another, but he wanted people to refrain from feeling about people the way that we do when it results in murder. Murder is just the outcome of a corrupt heart. And it is that corruption of our hearts that is, in one sense, just as great in the sight of God as the act itself. Verse 27 of Matthew 5 goes on, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks on a woman to lust after her has committed adultery with her already in his heart. So even if a person were to read Romans 1 and say, well, I can go through that entire list. I've not committed one of those sins, so I must be okay. Uh, Jesus reminds us that it's, uh, it's much more significant than that. And Paul, of course, in, in doing this to us, is bringing us to the place where we recognize that we are in big trouble with God. And we need salvation from outside of ourselves. Or do you think lightly, verse 4, of the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? We can conclude, because God doesn't intervene and, and judge us, that uh, God never will, or that somehow God lacks the power to deal with our sin or lacks the interest in dealing with our sin. But Paul explains here that his lack of stepping in to our lives and interrupting the course of our lives with judgment is because he is kind to us. He wants to give us the opportunity to judge sin ourselves, in ourselves, before he steps in and judges sin. And of course, elsewhere we read that because of this, the heart of man is hardened to do sin. Because we are not judged by God immediately when we do something bad, and if, if we were, of course, we'd all be dead, uh, we are emboldened to continue in sin. But that's how God has chosen to operate with us. He is a kind person. And uh, just as a child who gets out of line usually doesn't get uh, zapped the first time by his parent, so God gives us a little slack so that we can change our ways, so that we can uh, see the error of our folly and repent. God is waiting for people to repent, and that's one of the reasons we need to take the gospel to them. It's because it says they hear the gospel that they can find the way out of their sin and avoid the judgment that will come on them unless they do repent. 
But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are stirring up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath, the day when God will pour out his fiery indignation on sinners and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, the day when he will reveal the righteousness, the straightness of his judgment. That, that day is, is still coming. Who will render to every man according to his deeds. Now here's the second principle by which God judges. Not only does he judge righteously, but he judges according to deeds. According to deeds. And this, is, this has to do with what the defendant did in this court case. The first principle has to do with who the judge is, and the second principle has to do with what the defendant did. Now, Paul has clarified in the verses that we've just read that it's not only acts, but it's, it's attitudes that constitute our deeds. Uh, it's actually what we do in our thought life, in our physical life. It's what we do that God will use as a basis for our judgment. Well, I didn't really mean to do that, we sometimes say. Well, yeah, but we did it. Or I meant to do better, but we really didn't do it. And uh, so it is deeds that are going that God are going to is going to judge to those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality will come eternal life if a person was absolutely flawless in his behavior in his deeds he would get eternal life but of course while that is theoretically possible it is practically impossible uh, nobody can do that. In another sense, of course, the New Testament speaks of eternal life not only as a gift, but as a reward. And it talks about uh, us entering into eternal life <clears throat> to a greater or lesser extent. In John 10.10, 10, Jesus said, I'm come that they might have life, and that they might have it more abundantly. And it may be that aspect of eternal life that, that is in Paul's mind here. Those who persevere in doing good and seek for glory and honor and immortality, things that are valuable and worthwhile, uh, will one day realize those things. But to those who are selfishly ambitious, self-centered, and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, those folks can expect wrath and indignation from God. Selfishly ambitious points inward, and not obeying the truth, but obeying unrighteousness, points to an objective standard that we disregard and violate. So the point is that God will judge according to our deeds. And our deeds will either result in eternal life or wrath and indignation. There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man, every person who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek, 
In Paul's day, when he wrote this book, there was a basic twofold division among mankind in the minds of his writers. There were the Jews and there were the non-Jews, the Gentiles, also called the Greeks. And the Jews, of course, had a lot of knowledge of God because they had the Old Testament scriptures. They had revelations of God's will and person for them. And the Greeks lacked that, generally speaking. They did not have access to the the Hebrew Bible. But Paul says it doesn't matter, really, if you're a Jew or if you're a Greek. Uh, If you have a lot of knowledge of God or if you have little knowledge of God, Every it but glory and honor and peace to every man who does good. Excuse me, verse 9. There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, but glory and honor and peace to every man who does good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So verses 9 and 10 are kind of a repetition of verses 7 and 8, though he advances the thought by bringing in the Jews and the Greeks, who are the personification of, of self-righteous people and pagans. Doesn't matter if you're a self-righteous person who's very careful to go to church every Sunday, who's very careful to try and live by the golden rule, uh, keep, keep the Ten Commandments, or whether you're a pure pagan who pays no regard to that. It's our deeds that will determine the outcome of our judgment. And then verse 11 gives the third principle, for there is no partiality with God. He's not going to favor Jews because they are Jews. He's not going to be hard on Gentiles because they're Gentiles. So the third principle affects who the defendant is. The first principle is God judges righteously because that's who he is. He is a righteous person. The second principle is that God judges according to deeds, what we actually do, what the defendant does. And the third principle is that he judges impartially, regardless of who the defendant is. If you uh, go into court, sometimes you can, if you have enough money, you can buy smart lawyers and uh, you can get off of a charge because you have power. That's not going to work with God because there's no partiality with him. He does not give preference to the rich. He does not give preference to people because they are of the line of Abraham whom he chose to bless throughout history. These were his favored people through history. No, God is going to deal with everybody on the basis of the same principles of judgment. For all who have sinned without the law, that is, the Gentiles, the Greeks, will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. In other words, God will uh, judge us in terms of the light that we have. If a person has a a good knowledge of, of the Bible, we're going to be held responsible for what we know. 
But if a person doesn't have a good knowledge of the Bible, he's going to be held responsible for what he knows. And in both cases, there's going to be guilt involved. So God does not apply uh, two standards. He, uh, he applies the standard of deeds to everybody, regardless of their relationship and understanding of his law. For not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. And here, of course, the Jews in Paul's audience originally are getting a little uncomfortable because uh, they felt that because they had the law, because they heard the law, therefore they were going to be just before God. You remember in Jesus' dealings with the Pharisees and, and uh, the Jews in the Gospels, they frequently claimed that Abraham was their father. And so they didn't need to believe in Jesus. They felt that being the children of Abraham was enough to make them acceptable to God. And Jesus said, no, that's not enough. It doesn't matter if you're a hearer of the law. What matters is that you keep the law, that you're a doer of the law. Such a person will be justified. And this word justified is one that we will come across many times now on, uh, from now on in the book of Romans. It's one of the key theological words in the book, and we all need to understand what it means because it's going to recur over and over again. Justify is a legal term, and it means to make righteous in the sight of the law. Or, if you will, to declare a person righteous. It refers to our judicial standing before the judge of the universe. In Genesis 15, 6, we read that Abraham was justified by his faith. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. God put Abraham's faith as a credit to Abraham's account and accepted Abraham because of his faith. Justification does not mean that we are made holy in our behavior. And that is how it is frequently understood. But uh, it's a judicial term that refers to how we stand with God. Not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. You know, if you go into court and you you've got a traffic ticket, and somebody pays your ticket for you, the judge will let you go because your debt has been paid by somebody else. You're still guilty of breaking the law, but you are no longer under the law's power because somebody else has paid the debt. You have been justified. You have been declared free to go. And, of course, a common definition of justified is just as if I'd never sinned. That's the outcome of it. For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these people not having the law are a law to themselves. They, they have a law within them. There is something about human nature that 
uh, God has built into us that is an instinctive understanding of what is right and what is wrong, an innate knowledge of good and evil, Paul is referring to here. Even Gentiles who don't have the Mosaic Law, they've never read the Old Testament. They instinctively do things that the law requires because they know it's right. It's, uh, it's just something that, that people understand we need to do, things we, we should not do. Like killing somebody, for instance. We just know that there's something wrong about that. We don't have to read the Ten Commandments. Children know that. It's instinctive. Even atheists know this. Even people who disregard God completely uh, realize that there are certain things that are right and certain things that are wrong. This can become extremely twisted in people, but there is that instinctive, innate knowledge of right and wrong that God has placed in every person. I heard about an atheist who was uh, talking to his Christian friend, and, and he said, you know, you Christians uh, have an advantage over us because uh, you have your Christian holidays. You've got Christmas, you've got Easter. He said, uh, even the Muslims have, have their holidays. The Jews have their, their holy days, but, but we atheists have no, no special days. And uh, a Christian said, well, could I make a suggestion? He said, sure. He said, well, why don't you adopt a day? He said, well, that's a pretty good idea. What would you suggest? He said, how about April 1st? (laughs) (laughs) Not having the law, they are a law to themselves in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts. Their conscience bearing witness. Here's a second thing that God has given us that helps us to know when we have done something wrong. It's our conscience, their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending themselves. I heard about uh, something that some Paris cabbies came up with. Uh, Apparently, if you drive a cab, you see a lot of stuff going on in the back of the cab that's not very appropriate behavior. And And so um, these Paris cabbies got fed up with it, and so they came up with the idea of wiring the back seat to a special battery in the trunk. And uh, when they would uh, reprove their customers about, about bad conduct and the people didn't behave, they'd push a button and they'd zap them in the back seat. Uh, that's what our consciences do. They, uh, they give us a warning like that. Um, there's an old Oriental legend about a king who gave, or a magi- magician rather, who gave a prince a very fabulous ring. And this ring not only had uh, precious jewels and gold on it, but it had magical powers. And according to this old legend, The magician said to the prince, now this will guide you as you become king. And 
And uh, you'll find that this ring will be a great help to you, but it didn't explain how it would be. Yeah, but it wasn't long before the prince realized that whenever he had a bad thought or wherever, whenever he did something wrong, this ring tightened on his finger. That was its magical power. And that's what our consciences do as well. It's kind of like a computer. Our consciences are like a computer in that they do not have pre-planned programs that come to us from the factory. But as we put information into our consciences about what is right and what is wrong, that information stays there, like in a, a hard drive. And then when we get into situations, um, we're able to retrieve that information because it has been programmed there. Um, that's why some people who grow up in cultures where certain qualities like uh, violence are valued rather than despised have no conscience about being violent aggressors of their neighbors. Uh, it's never been programmed into their conscience that that kind of behavior is wrong. Uh, therefore, obviously, it's very important the kind of data we input into our conscience so that it can be a helpful guide to us and remind us of, uh, of God's will. We not only have the instinctive understanding of certain things being right and wrong, but we also have the benefit of a conscience. Read about, about a, uh, I read about a psychology professor who who taught his college class uh, that there were absolutes in the universe, and he had great difficulty convincing them of this. Some of the free thinkers in his class gave him a hard time about this the whole semester. And so finally he said, well, today I'm going to devote a whole class period to talking about absolutes. And if you don't believe this, you're going to fail the course. And a student shot up his hand and he says, that's unfair. The professor said, you've just proved my point. You believe that there is a standard of fairness. We can't get away from it. Our consciences, our instinctive understanding of God, accuse us. Their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending themselves on the day when, according to my gospel, according to the message about God's righteousness that Paul was preaching and set forth in this great epistle, God will judge the secrets of men through Jesus Christ. Not just what we do that is public, but what we do that is private as well, the secrets of men, and notice that the judge is Christ Jesus. In John chapter 5, Jesus claimed to be the judge before whom all will stand one day. And Paul's revelation is very similar to that here. So, in summary, to convict any self-righteous person 
of his or her guilt before God, Paul reminded his readers of three principles by which God will evaluate all people. He will judge righteously in terms of reality, not appearance, verse 2. And this is because of who he is. He is a right person. Second, he will judge people because of their deeds, both covert and overt deeds, verse 6. Because of what the defendant did. Third, he will judge impartially, not because of how much or how little privilege they enjoyed, but how they responded to the truth that they had. Verse 11. He will not show favoritism. Who the defendant is will not affect God's judgment. Now, this last principle has raised a question for many people. Will God condemn someone who has never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ if he or she responds appropriately to the limited truth that he or she has? Well, Paul showed later in this letter that no one responds appropriately to the light that he or she has, chapter 3. So we're coming to that. All fail to respond to the light that we have, and so all stand condemned. He also made it very clear that it is impossible to enjoy salvation without trusting in Jesus Christ. Chapter 10, verse 9, for example. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in his heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. It's directly connected with Jesus. John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. That's why Jesus gave the Great Commission. And that's why the gospel is so important. And that's why you and I are called to declare it far and wide, throughout the world, to our generation. Because, as Peter said, there is salvation in no other name under heaven. People have enough light to be condemned. But they need the gospel to be saved. People have enough light so that they are guilty before God, but they cannot be saved without the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Well, our time's up now. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word that shines the searchlight of reality unflinchingly into our hearts. And uh, Lord, even though we may not have committed gross sin, we realize that because of our thoughts and the intentions of our hearts, we we are far from what you would want us to be. And we thank you that even though we are guilty before you in view of our deeds, we thank you that you have provided someone who has come and paid the penalty for our sins and taken our place in judgment. And we just pray that if there's anyone here this morning who has never taken advantage of the the substitute that you have provided for us, that that person will do so even now, and help us who know you 
to be more aware and attuned to the lostness of people around us so that we will share the gospel more boldly and forcefully as we have opportunities in Jesus' name. Amen.